two sermons uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ and his birth and incarnation uh, as we celebrate the Christmas season. So we'll take a break, a slight break. But I want to say, we want to finish up at least this section here, Paul's um, speaking about fighting the good fight in the church. That's what the theme of Timothy is, I believe. That's what I call it. And included in that is not only against false teaching, but what included in that is proper conduct within the church. And at this point, we're looking at the proper role of women. Now, we've looked at some of the false teaching and the false teachers, which, by the way, may have contributed to the unbiblical attitudes that precipitated why Paul had to write this. So uh, it's just an interesting possible connection there. But he first talked about the false teachers, and then he talked about even the men lifting, lifting your, your hands in prayer, but without wrath and dissension. And Paul never wastes any words, and so it very well could have been some wrath and dissension within the church, which is not at all good, and Paul deals with it. Then he turns his attention to women. And again, this isn't that he's against women, but as we talked about the, the background and the context, uh, both in the letter to the Corinthians uh, and here in 1 Timothy referring to Ephesus, um, we see that there were those who were disrupting the church service, even though the church service was possibly in their homes. Perhaps they opened up their homes. And whether this was just culture that they were adopting this and bringing this into the church, or if in some way the false teachers were encouraging this type of behavior, Paul has to write to them. And he wrote to them on proper adornment and that it not be um, an adornment that would cause others to, to sin in looking at one, at looking at a woman, or the idea of competing with with. Uh, what you wear and, and perhaps being wealthy and those types of things, none of that has place in the church. But it, he said, what, then what kind of adornment is it? Well, it's the adornment of the hidden heart, quiet spirit, and the adornment of good works, which really uh, Paul speaks very highly of women in his letters. Well, this is not only just the church at Ephesus, but to all the churches, as he says. And so he is writing the role of women. Now, we've looked a little bit about uh, or at the role of women. Beginning with last week, we talked about the attitude of women in the church. We talked about the authority of men over women in the church. And we're talking about uh, leadership, those who are in leadership and teaching um, by the way, we're not at all saying that every woman must submit to every man and everyone else's husband. That's not at all what we're talking about here. But it is the idea of the leadership of men. We, we have an argument from that, from the Apostle Paul, verse 13. The argument was not from culture. This isn't a cultural debate. It was divine design from creation. God created Adam first and all of these things. And then finally, he created the woman for Adam. And so that was the whole precedence that, that man is to be the spiritual leader. And sometimes he's not. But man ought to be the spiritual leader. And the woman is to be submissive. Well, we also looked a little bit at the issue of prophetesses in Scripture. And in, look, in thinking about this, this is usually the argument today to say, well, yes, women can be pastors. Yes, this was all cultural. And just look at, for example, the prophetesses in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. Okay, so we will. Then we will move into our text this morning, argument from deception. Adam was not deceived, though Adam sinned. Adam was not deceived, Eve was. And then verse 15, which I believe is a good way to understand this difficult verse, many interpretations, it's an assurance of blessing, child bearing and child rearing. 
That's what we have this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look at these things, your word, teach us, Lord. Give us the correct understanding of them. Give us the correct interpretation of them, Lord. And most importantly, give us the, 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 the proper application of it, Lord, to put these things into practice, that we here as a Bible-believing church uh, follow the scriptures, and not only in what we believe, but also in how we behave. And, and Father, we thank you for the epistle to Timothy that teaches us about that. Father, guide my lips, uh, even as I preach this morning. Give us ears to hear, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So quickly, uh, as I said, he talked about the attitude of women in the church, the right attitude. And, and as I said, there was this idea of disruption going on, and sometimes it was of women. If it was of men, that also had to be quenched. But it seemed particularly um, emphatic with women. That's why Paul has to bring it out. And he talked about that they would learn. Where the rest of culture had, did not want women to learn. But Christianity elevated the position and status of women that they would learn. But they were to learn in quietness and submission. Quietness and not blurting it out and taking over. And submission to the leadership and the teaching of the church, which is to be done by men. Which leads us to verse 12, because he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assert authority of men. Now, Paul was not a woman hater. This, is, this indeed is not wrong. But this was according to God's original design at creation. And so men do have this leadership within the church. They also, husbands also have this in the home. We talked about that at great length when we went through the book of Ephesians, particularly chapter 5, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. But this is within the church. And so there, there's supposed to be this idea. Now, women can teach. Women can teach children. Women can teach other, other, other women. And we said when we have our Bible studies, it's perfectly fine if a woman has an insight and she wants to talk about that, that's perfectly fine. But what you cannot have is a woman teaching men or preaching to men. Even if the men say, hey, it's okay, we give you permission. Um, this, this, is, this is from the word of God and it is not to be. Um, again, not saying that women are unintelligent or unspiritual, but this is the position that God gave men. And as we said last week, part of the problem is that men don't step up. You know, part of the problem is, is that if men would step up, women would be satisfied to just submit if he would be the loving spiritual leader that he ought to be. And of course, in many cases, he is um, here at this church. Then the next one was, it was an argument from design. Again, Paul wasn't talking about culture because that's one of the great arguments you hear. Well, that was cultural. That was then. Um, Paul argued from the beginning. Paul argued from God's creation, that God created it this way. If you remember, he created Adam first, and that's what it says. And there was a precedence in that. And then he placed Adam in the garden. That was a precedence for that. He gave Adam the first command, and then he made a suitable helper for Adam, one that was suitable that was very similar to him, and one that was a helper to help him. And so we see that design in Scripture, and even being a suitable helper shows that Eve uh, was to take the submissive role there, and um, this was from even before the fall. Some say, well, when Adam and Eve sinned, well, it, you know, everything got crazy, which it did. But that's when God had to institute this hierarchy. No, this hierarchy was established from creation. We will talk about one other argument 
and that's in verse 14, but not at this moment. I want to just spend a moment or two talking about the issue of prophetesses in Scripture. So what's interesting is out of the 52 prophets that are named in the Bible, there are a number of prophets that aren't named, like the unknown prophet. But out of the 52, we find out seven of them were women, and hence the term prophetess, prophetess, and plural prophetesses. We have Miriam, Moses' sister. We have Deborah. We have Isaiah's wife. We have Huldah, which we just studied in our uh, study of 2 Kings. That's what brought this all up. Uh, Noadiah, uh, from the book of Nehemiah, which we believe that she was a false prophetess. Uh, Anna, in the New Testament, Luke chapter 2. And the daughters of Philip, in Acts chapter uh, 21. Now, as having the title of a prophetess, the idea of this is the idea of revelation to one degree or another. In other words, revelation, when we talk about that uh, as, as believers, we're talking about God revealing something to someone that wouldn't necessarily be known. The other idea of prophets is that they would teach the truth that had been revealed. Same goes for the apostles. So we see that. However, even from the get-go, we see a little bit of difference. Um, some of them we don't know anything about, like, like really Anna uh, there in the New Testament. Now, she, she identifies the Messiah, and I love that, and identifies him as the redemption of Jerusalem. But we don't hear of any revelations that she received. Uh, same thing with the daughters of Philippa. They are called prophetesses. So our assumption is, is that in one way or another they receive some revelation, but we, it's not written, it's not recorded. Interesting, Isaiah's wife in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 3 is called a prophetess, but we know of no prophecy that she gives. In fact, it's possibly believed that in her case, she's called a prophetess because she's the wife of a prophet. Just as in some instances, a woman is married to a deacon, and so she receives the title of a deaconess. Although I do understand that that is something that women um, in the New Testament have had as a ministry. Now, I want to just talk about some of these differences in detail. It's rare occasion. If we're only talking about seven or six minus Noadiah, we're only talking about six women. It's a rare thing. It wasn't a thing of precedence. It was a rare thing uh, for these uh, uh, ministries. And these ministries weren't... Um, ongoing, so to speak. Maybe Deborah would be the exception in there. The other thing is, is that these weren't public ministries like Jeremiah and Isaiah, where they would be there before the king and they would be there before Israel or Judah in some respects. Uh, we're talking about the divided kingdom. And their ministry was there the whole time, and they were pronouncing truth. They were revealing God's warning. They were doing all this thing. And it was a very, very public ministry. We really don't see that with these other uh, prophetesses. Uh, maybe Deborah is the uh, exception there. And that's why Deborah's always brought up as the exception to this. But um, even Huldah, the prophetess that King Josiah inquires of the Lord from. Um, they went to her in private. She told them in private. We see nowhere where she's out on the corners preaching like we do of uh, male prophets. Um, another thing is um, we, we, we see that many of these are private consultations. And even Deborah, even Deborah, was a private consultation. It says she used to sit under the palm tree and uh, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. There's a sense in which that's private consultation. Uh, we don't really see her before 
the, the whole nation, so to speak. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about Deborah in just a moment, but <clears throat> let, me, let me finish this up. The other thing is we do not see one is instance of any prophetess writing scripture, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And of course, if one were to say, why is that? Why is that? Well, I think last week's sermon helps us understand that. When Adam was created first on purpose for this dynamic, he was the one who was enabled to be the spiritual leader. But the woman is to be submissive. So no woman was inspired to author any of Scripture's 66 books. Well, let me just mention a few other things, too, here. Let's kind of pull it into the New Testament, so to speak. What, what is, what's the ministry of prophetesses in light of 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we're talking about? Well, number one, it appears that these are all extenuating circumstances. So, again, it's rare. And we don't see it as a norm that it needed to be as a norm, but we see it in rare instances and extenuating circumstances. Now, the question could be, isn't that a double standard by God? To which John Calvin responds, extraordinary acts done by God do not overturn the ordinary rules of government by which he intended that we should be bound. So, even the book of Acts, we get into the book of Acts, it's a transition, and uh, it appears that there's times when uh, the, the apostles laid hands on someone and they received the Holy Spirit. That's not the norm, according to Ephesians 1.13. That's not the norm. But is God able to do that for specific reasons? Yes. And in the book of Acts, it was for apostolic authority. It's, it's not a double standard if this happens, and again, it's because of rare circumstances. Well, what would be one of the extenuating circumstances? Well, I believe, and many have said and taught, that it's a lack of male leadership. It's a lack of male leadership. And both in the Old Testament, and I'm sure in the New Testament, and in our day, you see men not stepping up to their divine design of spiritual leaders, loving spiritual leaders in the home and loving spiritual leaders in the church. And when that happens, when there is kind of a negligence towards God's word, there can be consequences. And that's what we think we have in many instances. Now, let me just go back to Deborah for a second. Um, evangelical feminists, interesting, the quote there, it's by John Piper, and Wayne Grudem, evangelical feminists considered Deborah particularly significant because she functioned as a judge over Israel, which would include judging men, and she exercised authority over the man Barak, who was a commander of the Israelite troops. Now, this is from the uh, rediscovered uh, biblical role of men and women and this was put out by John Piper. Wayne Grude is pretty thick. Um, there are a lot of other authors that are part of that. John MacArthur is one of those very, very good. Um, you can actually even get a PDF of that free on the internet. Now, let's take a look at this. Now, um, one of the things that we see is that, that Deborah as a prophetess um, was given revelation that Barak, Barak, was to lead the army, was to have victory over the commander of the enemy and even be given victory over taking his life. So quickly, turn with me to Judges. Judges chapter 4. Looking at verse 6. And we do see, that we do see that, you know, I'm not denying that she wasn't a prophet. I'm not denying that we do see some authority here. I'm not denying that at all. But I believe it's extenuating circumstances. Now, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, 
and said to him, Behold. And so here it comes. Here comes revelation from God. The Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded. Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. Verse 7, I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's armies, with his chariots and many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Two things. So it's a command for him to go, and he is going to not only have victory as leading the army, but he's going to have the life of Sisera in his own hands. The problem here is when we look at the next verse, Barak says no. Or he says no unless there's a condition. The problem is you can't say no to a command. This is, this is, this is kind of like, I, I think even as an example, I'm not relating the two, but uh, the idea where men give permission for women to take the pulpit and become preachers. Um, as long as the men give them that permission, it's okay. No, it's not. If it says in the scriptures, I do not permit a woman to teach, that's true whether men know it or wise enough, have discernment or not. And so here when the Lord commands, the Lord commanded Barak to go, he said in verse 8, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. It might have gone a lot better had he said, well, I respect you and I would like you to go with, but I will do as the Lord said either way. And so this by many is taken as a, 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 a lack of leadership, a lack of stepping up to do what he was supposed to. He was refusing. So this lack of leadership disqualified Barak from receiving the honor of victory over Sisera. Instead, the honor of victory was given to a woman named Jael. Look at verse 4 verse 9. And here's the context that suggested that the Lord wasn't pleased with that response. You know, maybe it was because out of respect, but you don't say no to the Lord. It says, she said, I will surely go with you. And it's interesting that she wasn't going to go. She wasn't taking that role. The honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And so the Lord was giving Sisera into the hands of Barak, but because he said no, it was the honor of that is going to be given to this woman named Jael. Someone writes this from, from the same book, Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Deborah is not asserting leadership for herself. She gives priority to a man. There is an implied rebuke of Barak because he is not willing to go to battle without Deborah. Because of his reluctance, the glory that day will go to a woman and then another. Deborah's rise to such a role is the exception in the book because of Barak's failure to show the courage to lead courageously. God rebuked his cowardice by the pledge that a woman would slay Sisera, John MacArthur. Now, I will say this. If you go to the book of Hebrews, and I'm not asking you to turn there, you will see that his name is mentioned in the, in the hall of faith. And rightly so, because he did go out in obedience against uh, Jabin's army and did have victory due to the Lord. But... It was a partial victory because, as we know, J.L. was where Sisera ran to, escaped to the tent, fell asleep in her tent, and she drove a tent stake through his temple. And it's recorded in Scripture. And so the honor went to her in taking the enemy's life. But Barak did go to battle with shared leadership with Deborah and had victory over Sisera. Therefore, he is mentioned in the hall of faith. However, in 
that instance, the glory was taken from him and given to a woman. So this is how we understand a conundrum like this, prophetesses. Um, It seems that it's usually uh, due to the fact, or if in most of the cases, a lack of male leadership. So this in no way should be used to overturn what we have in the clear teaching of the New Testament. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man because it's divine design. And this is why we don't include this to say, well, it's okay. Well, let's move on then. And it would be now, let's move to our text Let's talk about the argument from deception. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul makes a second argument. So his first argument was by design, creation. Uh, God designed it this way. The second one is an argument from deception. Look at what he says. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, I do want to work my way through this gingerly, but I, I, I think it really does fit together, and I think it fits together in what he had just said in the design for man as the authority in the headship. Now, it's, it's not saying that Adam didn't sin. In fact, if we were to talk about the different types of sin, she was deceived. He understood. He had both eyes wide open and sin, not good. Okay, so it's not saying that. But he is saying, look, that with the fall that happened in the garden, sin, though Adam sinned, He was not deceived like Eve, and Eve became the first one to sin. Now, as we look at this, what is the argument from design? Adam was, since he was made first, and since he was given headship, since he's given authority, he was enabled with capacity to lead over her. Since she was made after him, the Bible tells us, and in submission to him, She was not made to take the lead and make a decision like this. And so it became successful for Satan when he deceived her. And it says truly deceived. And by that way, that word for deceived is very emphatic in the Greek. Now, again, we're not saying that Adam didn't sin. He did sin. And actually has a lot of liability and responsibility. Uh, So we're not saying, well, he wasn't liable, responsible. It was all the woman's fault. We are saying, no, Adam had, because he was the head, he had liability and responsibility in passing sin and guilt to the entire human race, not Eve. That was his responsibility. And I just want to talk about that for just a moment. Uh, Sometimes people say, well, why am I guilty if it was Adam who sinned? Well, okay, let's say that that you're not taking Adam as sole responsible. You're taking responsibility for yourself and not sinning. How's that going for you? Not very well. But though Adam was first um, created... And not the first to sin, he was created as man's representative head of the entire human race. So with with that leadership came responsibility, and he blew it. And that's why we're all in trouble today. Uh, This would include the sin and the guilt that it was imputed to the entire human race. And that would even include the inheritance, thank you, Adam, of our sinful nature, which we have at the very beginning of birth. Though I don't understand how when those babies are so cute. You know, so anyway, um, 
we have this. And if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 5, this is where this teaches this. So you see what Paul's doing? He's taught elsewhere. He's not saying that men are better than women. Uh, He's not saying that it's less of a sin. Um, He's just saying, but according to the, the role and the model of headship for Adam and submission for Eve, she stepped out from under the headship of Adam. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Well, what about Eve? What about Eve? You know, men will say, why, why am I in trouble because of Eve? No, it's, it's why are we all in trouble because of you, Adam? Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We sinned in Adam. He was our representative, and when he failed, it was passed on to the entire human race. So this is the idea. He was the one for bringing that in because of his representative headship. And and notice, when sin came into the world, so did death. That would be death, spiritual death, separation from a relationship with the Lord, but it also would be physical death. You wonder why we get sick? You wonder why we get sick and die? Because of the fall, because that is the consequences for sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, one writes this, ultimately the responsibility for the fall still rests with Adam since he chose to disobey God apart from being deceived. And I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of dead. The first man, Adam, the second man, the Lord Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive spiritually. We will still die physically. It's appointed unto man once to die because of the consequence of sin and the fall, which Adam brought into the entire human race. What did Christ do? He reversed that in that we can have eternal life. If we realize that we are sinners, in spite of blaming it on Adam, we ourselves are sinners. We have a sinful nature. We have sinned against the holy God and have incurred his wrath. But because God loved us, he sent his son to take our sin and our guilt and our penalty. And having taken it, The sinner now can look to Christ, realize he's under the wrath of God, but look to Christ and see that he paid the punishment for us, for that believer, and embrace Christ as your Savior, and that believer is forgiven, given eternal life, and now in Christ. So he says here in verse 14, He says, and it was not Adam who was deceived. So he's making a point here. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, I want to say something here. I do not believe that he's saying, well, this just proves women are less intelligent. He's not saying that. This just proves that only women can be deceived. Oh, my word. That is not true. Um, The beginning of this epistle, he starts talking out about false teachers who happen to be men. And I will say that we can look through history, even very recent history, where we do see that some women are the originators of cults and false teaching. But we also know that not all cults have been started by women. They are are also started by men. So we're not saying that only women, or Paul's not saying that only women um, are deceived. We can't say that women don't have discernment. I will be honest with you, there's at times when you're talking to believers and sometimes the wife seems to have more spiritual discernment than the husband. 
So we're not saying that, and Paul's not saying that, but what is he saying? Well, he's saying that Adam was designed for leadership and the headship, not her. And when she came out from under his authority, she opened herself up to Satan, and she was successfully deceived. And it says, uh, and it means completely deceived, completely deceived. It was not her responsibility. Headship was not her responsibility. So in the garden, Eve set herself up to be deceived by Satan by coming out from Adam's headship. Eve was the first to sin in relation to God's command. It's the idea transgress, to step over. Here's the line. Don't you dare step over the line. That's what transgression means or trespass in this case means, to step over the commandment. John MacArthur has an interesting comment. He said the fall actually corroborates God's divine plan of creation. By nature, Eve was not suited or designed to assume the position of ultimate responsibility. Not that she doesn't have responsibility. Um, I mean, all you have to do is go home to your wife who's with the children all day, and she says, fine, they're yours. I mean, there's a lot of responsibility. So uh, we're not saying that uh, uh, she doesn't, she, she can't have responsibility, but there is a design, there is a category, there is uh, an area that they have responsibility, but not over men, not in the home, and not in the church. And that's what it means. Again, God enabled Adam so what God calls you to do, he enables you to do. God enabled Adam, but not Eve, to be the head, the spiritual leader. And so she was deceived. By leaving Adam's protection and usurping his headship, she was vulnerable and fell, thus confirming how important it was for her to stay under the protection and leadership of her husband. Now let me just say something here too. Looking, looking now, moving away from the setting of the church, but looking into the home. Um, it, it seems to me that, and I said this before, when a wife is submissive and says, hey, you're in charge, you're the spiritual leader, the husband, the husband will more happily, well, what do you think, honey? You know, I respect what you say. But if she's trying to take the bull by the horns, he's going to fight her tooth and nail. By the way, that's what he's been designed to do. He's been designed to be the husband, the protector, the provider. And he goes out into a world and has to uh, work in the dog-eat-dog -dog world. So women, don't, don't come at your husband to fight. That's the wrong way to approach a man. But when you submit to that man, he's owed. You mean it's my responsibility? Inside he's going, uh-oh, that's, that's a man. That, you know, so, and it can even be said about us as, as when you're growing up and you're a man, you don't want any more responsibility. You know, lack of commitment, you always hear that. Well, you know, that's kind of part of it. So man has to step up. But he, he has been enabled to do this, even though at times he may not. She, per se, has not. She's been enabled to encourage him. So when, when, when she submits to the husband, the husband's like more happy to say, well, what do you think, honey? And then, you know, uh, he will have the final decision. There are those rare, rare times when husband and wife disagree, you know. Um, he will have the final decision. But here's my point. Wow. She can say, it's not on me. I've done my part. I've tried to talk to him. You talk to him, God. <laughs> and whatever happens is his responsibility, good or bad. It's between him and God now at this point. And there's a sense in which the woman could just, you know, if I submit, even though I may think he's making a mistake, I am still serving the Lord, obeying the Lord, and pleasing the Lord. 
the responsibility of a mistake is on the shoulders of a man. That's all part of the divine design and creation. So it's not a bad thing. I mean, there's probably a sense in every man when he faces certain things, <laughs> when he, you know, maybe I wish I wasn't the spiritual leader at this point or the leader or the head of the home. Well, you are. And the scriptures tell us to act like men, godly men, Christian men, that is. Well, from this point, after giving the argument from deception, and again, I think also from divine design, we have a verse that's very difficult to interpret. There's, or should I say there's a lot of different interpretations to this. But I'm going to call this, this is an assurance of blessing. And, and, I, and I want to explain that. And I want to work it out. And I know that there are other uh, interpretations and good men that have differing interpretations. But I, uh, there, uh, what I believe is this. Okay, so the women have just been told, you have to be submissive. You cannot teach. You cannot disrupt the hierarchy. Women have just been told, and by the way, it was you who were deceived. You went out from under your authority, and you were indeed deceived. But that doesn't mean that you are worthless. You have what you have. He has what he has. You were designed with other blessings, and one of the blessings is child-bearing and also child-rearing. And he's talking about this from a perspective of blessing. Don't think that because you were the first one to bring sin into the world that it's all over for you and it's a man's world now. That's not exactly what's being said. And so he says, but women, and, and he changes from talking to, I believe here, about Eve now to all women in general, even though the word woman is supplied there, the the, the Greek word gune is, is the word. Sometimes gune means wife. Sometimes gune means women. Um, I think if you go by the context, it's not hard to, to uh, reconcile it. To me, what would be the most offensive is the, is the Greek word gune. I don't want to be called a gune, okay? That's what, that's what I would not like. But anyway, that's, that's the word. We have our English word gynecologist from it. That's where that comes from. That's the root of that. But, but I believe the context here is, but women will be preserved. Notice the future tense. So he's not talking about Eve, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And along with the fact that there's a number of interpretations out there, uh, I, there's also a lot of things that I think I need to explain that it's not saying. But before we go any further, uh, I want to say that almost everyone who does interpret this does say this, that this was l intended to lessen the impact of verses 12, 13, and 14. So that's the overall concept. Why now? Why say this? It's whatever it is, it's a good thing, okay? Whatever it is, it's a good thing. And it's to show the woman, look, we're not saying you are the dregs of the world. You just have your role and men have theirs. And as we both stay in there and, and fulfill those roles in a responsible, godly way, there will be peace and there will be proper conduct, not only in the home, but also in the church. Now, having said that, I've counted up to five different interpretations. Uh, some say three major, but whatever. And the first one comes with uh, this idea of, if you look at the word preserve, it is the Greek word sozo. And sozo is the Greek word in the Bible that can refer to salvation. In fact, Paul uses this word at times to refer to to salvation. Um, 
But it also can mean, especially when you think about the Old Testament and the Septuagint, salvation means deliverance, deliverance from an enemy of some sort. Um, and so not every time that David prays about salvation is he talking about salvation, um, deliverance from sin and hell to going to heaven. There are those times, but it's also deliver me from the sword type of thing. And what I think we have here is that meaning. That meaning is not to save as in salvation. And let me just say this. And this is where we get a number of these interpretations. And this is why I don't agree with a number of them. Because they all use this word for salvation. In other words, some say that there's this idea of spiritual salvation. That you, are, you have spiritual salvation in the bearing of children. Wow. Wow, I know it can't be that. You remember what we said in Sunday school class? You, you do come across hard verses to interpret, but you don't interpret the whole Bible by that verse. You go to the common. You go to the detailed, the strong doctrine, and then in that light, you go back to the, the difficult one. The Bible clearly teaches you are not saved by any work. In fact, that's the beginning of... 1 Timothy chapter 1, you are not saved by works, whether it be bearing children, although I would say that would be a worthy thing to be saved by, but it's not. It's the blood of Christ. And even the phrase, if they continue, uh, I just think any of, these, any of these interpretations that include that, I, I, just, I just don't agree with, and I, I don't see that they're there. Some talk about physical salvation. Maybe this is talking about physical danger. Um, you know, since she's going to have to suffer now. That was one of the curses. She's going to have to suffer in childbearing. And also that she is um, going to, to want her husband's rule. Her desire will be for her husband, which I think is a desire for his rule. She has this propensity to grab the bull by the horns. But I, I don't think so. You don't, you don't really reverse you don't really reverse the curse here. It's not what he's saying. Um, I, you know, um, some even see this as a somehow of an analogous reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and his birth. I, I mean, you, you, you would say that that's what salvation is about. The coming of Christ, his incarnation, Christmas time, we're celebrating it now. But you really got to go through a lot of gymnastics to get there. We believe it's true, but not through this way. I believe what this is saying is a deliverance or a preservation from the stigma of the fall. From the stigma of the fall, which it seems to work in there. You know, it seems to, to fit in this quite nicely. The idea here is, It's the idea of preserving means to be spared or be given a blessing, to be delivered from the stigma. In other words, since Paul had been talking about women's submissive role in the church and Eve's deception, Paul wanted women to know of their blessings. And they have the blessing of childbearing. Only women can give birth to a child. And I know that today you hear all kinds of weird science about transgender and all of that, but the, uh, a man, a man-man, a size man, cannot give birth. Even if his stomach were to be a place of incubation, he cannot give birth. Only a woman. And what a blessing that is. So if you're thinking about this theologically, here's Eve. He was the first to bring sin into the human race, although Adam is the representative, brought it in. She is, Eve was the mother of living, and all mothers after that are women who will bring life into the world. And not only that, but he's going to move in, not just bringing life, but as a believer, you can rear them in a godly way. And it seems as if there's a very major design of women to nurture 
and to rear their children. The husband does as well. But there always will be a special place between the mother and their children. After all, she carried them for nine months, sometimes nine hard months. Well, and there always is that. There's certainly, there's certainly that special place in the, the mother's heart for the child, you know? And the father loves him too, but he's thinking, oh my word, now we're talking about college, we're talking about cars, oh my word. No, I'm kidding, but, but seriously, he, he's part of that too, and he's the head of the home. But there is this blessing that women have. You know, I wasn't a perfect child. I know, I know, don't be shocked. <laughs> I wasn't a perfect child by any means, but I knew that I would never, no matter what, sink below the grasp of my mother's love. I just, I knew that. I knew that. And that's a mother. And that's the blessing that women have. So women will be preserved from the stigma of the fall. They will be delivered from that. They will be given the blessing of the bearing of children. Now, look at this next part. It says, if, it's a condition, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And again, we are not saying that a woman has to be obedient, completely obedient to be saved. She is obedient because she is saved. And she will struggle with the old nature, which has not been eradicated yet. This is not saying that in any way we keep our salvation or the woman keeps her salvation. What this is saying is the real reason why Paul is saying this. Not only do women bear children, but women can raise godly children. So though she may have been the first one to sin in the human race, she is still enabled by divine design from the beginning, to be able to rear her children in a special and godly way. And I think that's the reason for the condition, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. In other words, if they're believers, but they don't continue in faith and love and sanctity, if they're not very good believers, you're going to have a hard time raising your children to be godly. I think that's what it means. And so he goes through this. And by the way, let me, let me just read this. John MacArthur says, Paul is teaching that even though a woman bears the stigma of being the initial instrument who led the race into sin, it is women through childbearing who may be preserved or freed from that stigma by raising a generation of godly children. Now, let's quickly, for the sake of time, go through this quickly. What are these elements of godly nurturing? What are these characteristics that a, a godly woman is supposed to have in the idea of raising a godly family? He says faith, love, sanctity, and self-restraint or self-control. The first one is faith, pistis in the Greek, which often primarily means Salvation, faith in Christ for salvation. But we also know it means faith in living out the Christian life. Work out what God has worked in. And you do that by faith, believing that he's worked it in. And by faith, I step out in it. And I'm, I'm obedient. And then also, too, the, the idea would be faithful in living for the Lord. Faithful in living. And, and it could be any one of these three that he means, but certainly the first one, the first one would be necessary. If you're going to raise your children godly, you need to know Christ. If you're here and you're a mother, or if you're listening to this and you're a mother and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the best thing you can do is come to Christ yourself so that you could lead your children to Christ. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how your children turn out. If you don't know Christ or if they don't know Christ, the end is not good. 
And we, we think of 2 Timothy where Paul said, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. So we, we certainly see that. Then the next one is love. Of course, we would all think about love, but we're thinking of godly love. We're thinking, first of all, of the love of God. When you teach love and show love, as you should, woman or man, mother or father, it ought to be grounded in the love of God. Because we really don't understand agape love until we understand what he did. And then that's the kind of love he tells us we have to exercise. That's the bar. The bar is very high. And while we were yet sinners, yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it would be also teach your children a love for God, not just to obey God. I know there's a connection between love and obedience, absolutely, but especially to love God and to be faithful to God and love for one another. The next one is sanctity, which it's the Greek word hagiosmos and means to become holy or sanctified. And this is not just the responsibility of the father, but also of the mother, as she instructs the children of the word of God. It says in 1 Thessalonians, uses the same word, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in holiness or sanctification or sanctity. This is what God has called us to. And it's the word of God that teaches us that. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Make them holy in the truth. Well, well what's truth? Don't ask culture today. Ask Jesus in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And finally, the last one is self-restraint. And we actually saw this in verse 9 when it said that women have to adorn themselves discreetly. It's the quality of life characterized by the ability to restrain passions and impulses. As a mother shows herself as an example in these qualities, she becomes a living illustration for her children. And the idea is, is she must teach, as must the father, teach purity to their children so that they don't give in to the sinful impulses that come with the sinful nature that we all have. We have it. We have the Holy Spirit and a new nature, and we don't have to give in to it, but by the self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, we are able to say no to sin and yes to God. That's what a mother should teach. She has a blessing there. In conclusion, the godly appearance, demeanor, and behavior commanded of believing women in the church is motivated by the promise of deliverance from any inferior status and the joy of raising godly children. And so we really do end on a positive note and it's not at all saying women are less or inferior. It's not at all saying women aren't as smart or spiritual or intelligent as men. Not saying that at all. It's saying we're just doing what God told us by divine design. And what we know from divine design is how he creates, is how he enables. You are created to do your responsibility, men. And women, you are created to do your responsibility. And it's terrible when we have a culture that just destroys all of that, thinking we've got freedom now. Oh, no. Oh, no. If you only know what you've destroyed. But we're Bible-believing Christians. We're saved men and women. We know how God designed, and we can have the peace. We can have the joy. We can have the 
carrying out of the proper conduct both in the home and in the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for how it all plays out, Lord, from the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of Scripture. And I know that there's different interpretations, and some of them are, are very difficult. Some of them are understanding, understandable. But every, everyone sees these, this, this final verse as making up for any lack of anything that had been said. Father, I thank you for saved women, godly women. I thank you for our mothers. I thank you for our wives. I thank you for our daughters. Oh God, how we pray that as a church, we are fighting the good fight in the church of portraying biblical roles of which you work through. And we'll thank you and give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.